coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. A new satellite ISP has got permission to serve residents in the U.S. Are their low-latency broadband claims too good to be true? We discuss. And the U.K. government is now claiming that using the dark web is a potential sign of terrorism. Tor users out there, watch out. And we take a deep dive with Krebs on security into the wild world of robocalling. Plus, Dan's got a great update on his Let's Encrypt setup. We've got your fantastic feedback, a rockin' roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed in front of a live IRC audience and is brought to you by our three magnificent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me for episode 326 of the TechSnap program is our host, Dan. Welcome to the show, Mr. Dan. Hello, everybody. We're here. Woo! You've got your awesome Tetris lamp in the background with your beautiful rack. Everything looks looks beautiful. How are you today? It's great. I'm good. How are you? Oh, doing splendidly. It's a beautiful day here in the Pacific Northwest. I've been hanging out with the one and only Chris Fisher of Jupiter Broadcasting. Next week, we're going to have a live in-person barbecue. But actually, that's happening today. What am I talking about? Today, yes. Yeah, today. Um, exactly today. You said Pacific Northwest, right? I did. But it's really in the northeast of the Pacific. <laughs> True. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I used to live in the southwest of the Pacific. You're talking about New Zealand here. I always found it weird. Why do they call it the Pacific North? Because it's the Pacific Coast North. Pacific. West. Yeah, right. I mean, you could have just Northwest where you're not by the Pacific. That's boring. Yep. Yep. Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, boy, we've got a good show today. I guess we should just get started, unless you have anything you want to uh, interlude with. Uh, I like that you're looking around. That's amazing. Well, You just have enough toys around the room that you can look around and find things that you want to talk about. It's perfect. I've got this shelf that I was going to sell, but now I think I'm going to keep it because it's ventilated. And I'm going to move some of the stuff around on there. And I've, I've assigned that task, but I don't know when it's going to get done. But yeah, just be glad. It may be a wide-angle camera, but just be glad it's up above because this is a mess. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, don't worry. It's a wreck everywhere. We um, definitely are. Oh, yes. Oh, interesting. Okay, ripe. Yeah. And, and on the CC. back. Oh, IPv4 cider chart. Look at that. Oh, that's yep. handy. What's on the other so, side? I missed that. On the other side is the same thing for IPv6. Oh, hand. That's all. Aw- Where did you get that? BSD can. So it's a cider chart for both um, groups, IPv6 and um, uh, IP4. Um. Um, Max was giving these out. We know him as Max. Um, he, he works for um, Ripe. Ripe? Does he work for Ripe or does he work? Yes, he works for Ripe. He's the guy that supplied me with uh, that little white box behind my finger here. This is the uh, Ripe 
Atlas probe. It phones home and it contacts the box to do various DNS up to, uh, tests. How long does it take to resolve this? What does this resolve to? Stuff like that. And that comes from... Right, right. that's part of, part of their um, Atlas program, I believe it's called. Something like that, yeah. right? It, it's pretty cool. Yep. And they can then... Some fi- figure out how latent things are. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, here's their uh, here's their website right there. And you can probably find my probe in there somewhere, but let's not. They have almost ten thousand probes connected. That's awesome. Yep. With fifteen thousand measurements. And they give them away free, and you just plop them in, and they do stuff. Sits on your network, and you know, pings ping, pings home, and pings other yep. things, and yep. And you accumulate credits for running one. Oh, and you can use the credits to run your own tests. That's okay. That's really, and then so then you get access to this distributed network of probes that you can suddenly go like, "Hey, mm-hmm. oh man, that's fascinating. That seems like a pretty good arrangement." I have, I think, uh, either a million or two hundred and fifty thousand credits. I can't, <laughs> I can't remember. Like, it's been ages since. So I So you're not using it regularly? No, I'm not using it. I'm just have it plugged in there. I think I've had it for three years now. Mm. Awesome. And, and it sends you a monthly status, which includes percentage uptime. Okay, that's handy too. Well, then you can get some some reports and uh, then you send it's an invoice been, to your ISP about your downtime that's above SLA. It's only been one or two months out of all that time with 100%. <laughs> yeah, those are the good and 99 point something a lot. But. Mm-hmm. Oh, I would like to see that. That that's fascinating data. I should take that and graph it. You really should. I would like to see that. All right, now you've got homework. Okay. Hey oh. Alexa, remind me to do a graph of the Atlas right probe. You tried. All right, done. Great. With that, I guess we can move right on into the start of the TechSnap program. First up today, I mean, we're talking here about networks, and maybe we'll have a new way to start getting internet service? I don't know. Yes. Um, what do people do out in the middle of nowhere, literally, not exaggerating, hundreds of miles from broadband? There are many people like that. And I've heard it mostly, say, in, in the Northwest, uh, the Midwest, and sometimes... Um, the south of the U.S., and I, I mean mid, mid-south. They have no broadband. Uh, they often use satellite, but usually they use geo-stationary um, satellites, and we'll talk about what that is later. And generally, I've heard that people use them uh, satellite for a downlink and uh, DSL or something for, outgo- for upload. You can't upload very fast, but with a satellite, you can download quickly. But the problem with that is, you know, geocentric satellites are, what, 30,000 kilometers away? No, 35,000 kilometers away. 35,400 to be specific. And that's a big ping time. That's half a second or more of, of latency. No, thank you. You can't game over that. So... There's this new company that's doing great things. A company seeking to offer low-latency low latency broadband from satellites received a key approval from the 
FCC. Today, today's satellites, today's satellite ISPs have average latencies of 600 milliseconds or more. That's average. With satellites orbiting the Earth at about 35,400 kilometers. Now, just a brief aside, why are they so far away? Well, if you just to put something in orbit, it would start falling. So what do you do to stop it from falling? You propel it forward. And what you try, when something is in orbit, it's basically falling at the same rate that it's moving forward. Exactly. So as it's falling, it's staying the same distance away from the Earth at all times. So in order to become geocentric, you have to be so far out that the pull is so low that your rotation exactly matches the Earth as it spins around. So because it's so far out, it's actually spinning around fairly quickly, but it's always staying above the same point of the Earth. And that means, uh, am I correct in that most geocentric satellites are around the pole? They can be around anywhere, but they're generally around the equator. I meant, I didn't mean the pole, but they're generally around the equator or somewhere so that they always stay the same place. Someone's going to write in and correct me. So, in contrast, OneWeb, this is the company, OneWeb satellites would orbit at about altitudes of 1,200 kilometers. Someone look up and find out where the ISS is, please. I'm sure it's way under 1,200. I think it's more like 300. Might 249 miles. You knew that? I just Googled it. I'm just quick like that. What's that in kilometers, though? Uh, let's see. So the company says internet access would have latencies of around 30 milliseconds, which gets respectable. It's about 400 kilometers. Yeah. So these are about three times as high as a uh, space station. So speeds would be around 50 megabits per second. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's totally tolerable. 50 meg and, and 30 milliseconds. You're not going to win any games on it, possibly, but you you can live with that. Um, OneWeb says it will start launching production satellites in early 2018. Now, the one thing that is interesting is the proposed network would have 720 low-Earth satellites using the 20 to 30 gigahertz and 11 to 11 slash 14 gigahertz frequency range. There were the it would be able to provide ubiquitous low latency broadband connectivity across the United States, including some of the most remote areas in places like Alaska, where broadband access has not been possible before. So basically, satellite, just like a satellite phone or like satellite TV. Um, you've seen satellite dishes on. Houses, outside houses. Houses, businesses, etc. And they're sort of aimed up at about 45 degrees or so. Mm -hmm. That's because these geocentric satellites are all out by the equator. Right. So that, that angle then will depend on your angle on the Earth, right? How they, because they're all, they'll all change as they're trying to point. There's a lot of fun geometry going on here. Yeah. And as someone points out, satellite ISPs are deemed to be one of the better broadband schemes. So I imagine that 
the existing satellite services are considered broadband, but oh, there's a lower end of broadband. I, 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 I was not interested. It's the thing you do because you have no better choice, right? Because I think in many you can't cases, do anything else. Yeah. Um, so with 720, um, that's way, way more than, say, GPS. But GPS are also geocentric. No, they're not. Uh, that's got me. I don't think G- I don't think GPS satellites are ge- geostationary either. I said geocentric. So, um, uh, one web called Correct. yesterday. They are not. CC vote. Yeah, they are not. Okay, good. So uh, back here, uh, missed it. OneWeb isn't the only company seeking to build low Earth satellite broadband network. So is SpaceX. Yeah, they they have similar plans, but I don't. I I didn't read to find out where they was coming from. So um, the FCC re- received comments from other satellite operators questioning some aspects of the OneWeb application. While approving OneWeb's application, the FCC had imposed conditions to ensure, quote, the satellite's constellation does not cause interference to other users of the same spectrum and will operate in a way that manages the risk of collisions. The FCC's satellite engineers, engineering experts are reviewing similar applications from other companies. This sounds pretty cool. Heck, I don't yes, know. Yes, it does. I don't know if it would be useful to, to, to you and me, but for a lot of people that are using satellite service now, they'll be jumping on this as soon as they can. Now, I'm going to guess that they're going to use something similar in scope to what cell sites do, where you jump from one You'll basically you end up being transferred between satellites yeah. as they yeah. range over and your position yeah. changes as well. And you'll always have to have different satellites. Mm-hmm. You, you'll have to have multiple satellites covering it. And and that is essentially how GPS works. Is You're not getting a signal from one satellite. You've got to get a signal from four satellites to fix your position and altitude. And I remember reading this, and it was so fascinating in this magazine when I was in Vancouver in 95. Don't ask me how I remember <laughs> that exact thing. But you but know. It was, it was 95 in Vancouver, probably May. And I was reading this article about how basically your GPS unit gets a signal, and it has a timestamp on it. And it also has a clock within it, and it knows the difference between the time clock in it and the time signal it received represents the distance that the satellite is away from you. So that enables you to draw a sphere around the satellite because you know that that signal travels a, a set distance and a set time. So you know how far you are from that satellite. So that's just a sphere. And then you get another signal from another satellite. You define the other sphere. And you once you define three spheres, they will intersect, I believe, at a number of points. But you can discard some of those points. Because you're probably not in space. In space yeah. And they're too far below you. But if you get a signal from a force satellite, four satellites can only intersect at one point, I believe. Or 
if there are if there are multiple points, you can discard them as well. But that gives you your your altitude, and so that's why you know watches that do this sort of thing are taking readings from multiple. Anyway, we're getting way off. Uh, but it's fun though. GPS is fascinating, and oh. it's very real world technology that you know we all use day to day. And there's just a lot of cool math in there. Ah, oh, oh yeah, I do like that math. Um, <clears throat> now. Someone says, why is the FCC in charge? Because it's an American company. And they will coordinate with everyone else. I'm sure there's an international organization that coordinates satellites. They all work rather <laughs> friendly so. together. Yes. So, yeah. I'm looking forward to this. You, you've heard about um, microsatellites, just little things. They're only about this big, I think. They get launched off. And I have not. Launch 50 or 60 at a time, yeah. Um, I forget the exact term, but I read about it. Um, uh, often someone will, will send up a whole bunch of them, and they all get launched and then distributed out over a wide area. Um, they can do various things, just like photography and uh, um, crop monitoring and stuff like that. Uh, I don't know much more about it. I forget the term they were using for these tiny little satellites, but they were interesting. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, I just jumped over to uh, just to compare, like we can look at the um, SpaceX. They were recently talking about that as well. They were hoping oh, yeah. to have right. latency as low as two hundred or twenty five milliseconds, but they're not launching until twenty nineteen. Looks like. Now that is interesting. Oh yeah, I can see this. I can see the further reading. Yeah, they're um, the planned constellation of four thousand four hundred and twenty-five broadband satellites will launch. What? I know, right? That's a, that is a crazy huge number of satellites. In eighty-three planes. Yeah, from ranging from eleven hundred to thirteen hundred. So they're really. I mean, it sounds like they're going. They're going big. They proposed maybe an additional 7,500, even closer to the ground, and to boost capacity, reduce latency. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Mm. Uh, They say they'll operate as a mesh network and allocate broadband resources in real time, placing capacity where it's most needed and directing energy away from areas where it might cause interference. So what is also interesting here, they mentioned there are an estimated... 1,459 operating satellites around the Earth at the end of 2016. So this is more than this is three to nearly four times as many. Right, just doing Um, this, that would like dramatically increase the number of these satellites. That's crazy. By four. Yeah. It'll, it'll, It'll quadruple the number of satellites up there. Anyway. Boy, I wonder, I'm curious what the ground installation for these systems would look like. How big of a satellite dish do you need? What kind of things... How portable could it be? The, re- the receiver, yes. Yeah. How well you, you've seen satellite radios on, on cars and yeah, stuff like that's that. That's true. It's like, just a little scallopy mm-hmm. type thing. It's not very complex at all. Yeah, but how big but do that, you need for that, that, bandwidth? For, and, yeah, yes. This is much less. Um, this uh, radio is much less. Uh, yeah, exactly. Bandwidth. Right, Bandwidth. and and, yeah. and it's unidirectional, right? So you don't care about the upload, you don't care about the latency in mm-hmm. that direction at all. Yeah. So yeah. that makes it easier. And I wonder if you need, you know, I've heard about two-way satellite links. 
for broadband, but I don't know how they haven't said how this is going to work. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's not accidental. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it's at least neat. Like, I'm glad that we're pursuing some of these things. We'll see if they're good ideas, good designs, all of that. But more internet access, I think, is almost always a good thing. And there are a lot of underserved areas in this country and in the world at large uh, that could really do with better connectivity. Yep. What would it take for you, you think, to switch? Cheaper than my... Yeah, it comes down to money, doesn't it? Yeah, it would have to be cheaper because... um, but is there like a minimum threshold for bandwidth or latency that like where where would you draw the line? Let's say it, let's assume it's cheaper, but like what quality of service do you need to get by with? Let me just see here. What am I getting ping times here? I'm getting sub 20 millisecond ping times to one of my boxes out there. And let's see here www.google.ca and I'm getting similar 16 average ping times 12 to 16 to Google. So yeah, if it was a lot cheaper and it was like 30 millisecond times, now that's 30 millisecond average. Yes. Mind you. Right. Hmm. Okay. So there's like, if, if, if it's as advertised, it might be within, within spec for you. I downloaded a lot of stuff at the end of the, <laughs> at the beginning of the month. Yeah, right. There, that comes back there. It's true. Yeah, and I know that's so, a big pain for a lot of satellite customers, where they have to, you know, be careful to schedule things so they only do their like downloads or updates on off hours where it's cheaper or things like that. So it'll be interesting to see if this is in that same vein or if it's an entirely new class of ISP in some ways. It'll be interesting. Exactly. Alrighty then. Well, if you're getting really excited about how you might have internet just about everywhere that you go, I think a natural pairing of that is our friends over at DigitalOcean.com. Head on over to DigitalOcean.com. There, you'll find cloud computing. It's designed for developers. It's designed for businesses. It's designed for people who just want to get things done. DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get started because... Prices start at just $5 a month. If you use our promo code, SNAPOcean, that gets you a $10 discount. Did I mention they have both monthly and hourly pricing? Yeah. Uh-huh. That makes it even better. So when you've got $10 in the bank, $0.03 cents an hour, boy, that's nothing. And what you get for that, 2 gigs of memory, 2-core processor, and that's on real good KVM virtualization, 40 gigs of SSD disk. And DigitalOcean was one of the first big companies to to jump on the SSD bandwagon. They've been SSD first pretty much their entire existence. They get how it works. They have fast, reliable storage. You get three terabytes of transfer, and that's like 40 gigabit E right to the hypervisors. It's amazing bandwidth. Maybe you're on one of these satellite connections that we've been talking about. DigitalOcean makes a great pairing with that because if you're a little bit little bit technically savvy, and I think that you are because you're watching the TechSnap program, boom, DigitalOcean is a perfect proxy. Boom, I need a big download, something like YouTube DL or similar. You just do that on DigitalOcean. They have 
awesome transit. You'll get a great download speed. And then you can sync it from there at your leisure. You don't have to worry about any of these intermittent connections or, or connect latency problems. You can use whatever tools you want to sync from the DigitalOcean droplet down. They make a great solution for backups, blogs, photo sharing, as we just talked about on in the Linux Unplugged last week. There's just so many options that you have available with DigitalOcean, and they keep adding more. Things like monitoring, load balancing, object storage, and attachable block storage. They've had that one for a while now, but when you do backups or you want to run something like FreeBSD with ZFS, totally supported on DigitalOcean, you can just add in more block storage. It mounts right to your droplet, shows up there. It's super easy to get started. They have a great API. All of these things are in the API. They've got simple-to-use apps, and they have an amazing community. That's maybe the best thing about DigitalOcean. You use our promo code SNAPOcean. That gets you started. Then you can go read some of their community guides. I mean, you can read them if you don't because they're they're all public. But when you read these guides, you're like, "Wow, it's so easy to get started. I could I could have my own my own blog or or, or my own syncing server or my own GitLab or or whatever you need." In like 55 seconds, you'll spin up a new one. You'll find great tutorials with real editors who edited them, paid users for their contributions, great guides, and you'll just be so productive. So go get started. Go to DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code SNAPOcean to let them know you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. And go have some fun. And then write back to your TechSnap program and tell us what cool projects you did over on DigitalOcean. And thank you to the DigitalOcean Project for sponsoring. Okay, Mr. Dan. Well, that was fascinating. I'm already excited about the future of satellite internet and how when I'm, um, I'll just carry my little portable satellite with me. I'm in the I'm uh-huh. in the woods. I'm camping uh-huh. for six days. I just set my uh-huh. satellite up. I've already got yep. my laptop. I've got my solar little, charger. It's all yeah. perfect. Yep. Sure. So, um, what else do you have for us today? Well, when you're doing all this, make sure you don't visit the dark web. Mm, well, I was. That's what I was. That, I, that's what I was doing. Yes, that's why I'm in the woods hiding from the authorities. Okay. The dark. The dark web is often referred to as the places you go to buy illegal stuff. And there's a lot of illegal stuff you can buy in the web, but it's not at Amazon, and it's not at Walmart, and it's not at on eBay. It's generally in websites that have very rough reputations. And the UK, in the UK, they were recently uh, distributing leaflets in London. And it said, listen, watch out for this kind of stuff. If you see any kind of this stuff, it's kind of suspicious, so let us know. And one of the things that said in the leaflet, police tell citizens to be on the lookout for anyone using the dark web. Now, on its own, using the dark web, there's nothing necessarily suspicious about that. I do know people that use the dark web on a regular basis for perfectly legitimate reasons, mostly related to their work, which is security-related things. Because you find a lot of security stuff on the dark web, such as credit card numbers, names and addresses, stuff like that. Well, I think it also... Oh, sorry, go on. Go ahead. Uh, I think it also ties back right back into how... Uh, you know how we talk about that using the dark web isn't 
yes, if you are doing nefarious things, you need additional privacy or you want additional privacy. But like you're talking mm-hmm. about, like there may be very you're, because of research or because of your very public persona that you may mm-hmm. you know you may be targeted. You need a platform where you can protect some of your identity that you could have a blog, even you know yep. talking about good things. It's yep. just a simple tool like that. And uh, often you can only get to the dark web through a dot onion domain. <laughs> and in the past, it has been claimed that people using uh, Tor, the onion router network, uh, that's very suspicious and we should look into these people. But again, no, using a Tor router or a Tor browser, there's nothing suspicious about that in and of itself. It's like it's like saying people taking photographs of sensitive areas are suspicious by nature. I mean, there, there's always, oh, no, you can't take pictures of this. Well, it's not a high-security website. It's a public building. And, yep. and it, it, it just, it, it's really about, we have to think about it as a shift of onus, I think, in that same way where, like, well, if you have a secure building in the public view, people can take pictures of it. You, you have to design your building and your security mm-hmm. measures with that in mind. In the mm-hmm. same way, we have to design, like, encryption will be used like we talked about in the last episode the dark web will be used we just have to accept that and move on and prioritize accordingly it's um open source software is all in the open yeah that security is all in the open power yeah it's it's not a bad thing that people can see the innards of it it's often how bugs are found and fixed Mm mm-hmm so casting aspersions upon people who may be doing something perfectly innocent. Anyway, once we get further down into this, we'll see the context in which this occurred. So when I first read this, I said, oh, this is crap. But <laughs> context is everything. So context, London is on high alert. After a series of terrorist attacks on the capital, a man from Cardiff is now believed to be responsible for another incident on a group of worshippers near a mosque in London. It is not surprising that after a horrible incident, politicians and lobbyists push for more and more intrusion upon private lives. Um, There are existing tools to deal with this stuff. You don't need more intrusion. So police in the capital have been have reportedly been handing out leaflets listing what authorities deem as suspicious activity in the hope that vigilant community members can now provide helpful helpful information to law enforcement. Perhaps in a sign of how online communities play an increased role in radicalization, the leaflet specifically points to the use of the dark web as a potential link to terrorism. Potential not probable, not likely, but potential. Keep things in perspective. So here's the list uh, of suspicious activity, which could, could include someone who appears to be carrying out surveillance. Fair enough. Taking photos of security arrangements, for example. Maybe. Has firearms or other weapons or has shown an interest in getting them. Now, firearms in the, in the UK are very different to many other countries. So, yeah. Is visiting the dark web or ordering unusual items online? Yeah, what's unusual I, here? I order unusual items online. I order 
10 hard drives at a time sometimes. And to the normal person, that is very unusual. What is this guy doing? I'm building a storage server. It's not unusual at what all. What do you need this rack and the cage for and all these weird cables and controls? No pictures, please. No pictures. Too late. It's been live streamed. <laughs> Has bought or hired a vehicle in suspicious circumstances. I don't know what, what that means. I don't know. Has bought or st- stored large amounts of chemicals, fertilizers, or gas cylinders for no obvious reasons, or is researching acquiring these items. Now, that is rather reasonable, unless you're a farmer. But farmers are usually pretty well-known and able to do these things. Hey, me so, and my large cylinder of gas, we just like to snuggle on the couch yes, while we're unwinding, yes, watching yes, TV. Yes. There's nothing wrong and with that. There are very real restrictions in buying fertilizer. Yeah, totally. Very real. So, uh, next. Has undergone an extreme and unexplained change in their behavior. Worst case, it's a mental issue. Best case, they get fired from their job. Is, Is carrying out suspicious transactions on their bank account. Why does this guy, every... February, March, and April, his credit card bills go through the roof, and he pays them off in full all the time. But the rest of the year, it's nothing. Why is that? Well, he runs a conference in Ottawa called BSD Can. In fact, he runs two conferences called BSD Can and PG Con. Sorry, but yeah, yeah. I think that that goes to highlight the fact that anything looks suspicious when you don't understand the motivations or don't have the full context. Mm-hmm context here's an idea here's an example of context um i've told this story once or twice before um a grandmother was helping her daughter uh put away the dishes while the the grandchild was hanging out in the backyard and um she didn't always put away the dishes so she had to ask where various things went and they got around to these little plastic cups where do these go? Oh, down there with the pots and pans. Why? So the kids can get their own drinks without asking the parents. <laughs> See, that makes sense. It makes sense. Yep. In context, it makes sense. And that is why you document very unusual or hard-to-follow aspects of your code. The very obvious things you still have to document, but the extremely obvious, put some good comments in there and say, this is being done because of that. So back to this for suspicious transactions. Yeah. So holds passports or other documents in different names for no obvious reason. Well, I hold multiple passports, but they're all in the same name. I do have one document where, where one of my names is misspelled, but it's not worth changing. Hmm. Wow. Oh, boy. Travels for long periods of time, but vague about where they're going. Maybe they just don't like talking about it. Yeah, this describes like any um, private person that you might know who just doesn't, he he was offended that you're inquiring about their personal business. Yep. They get reported. So anyway, I think we have to stop the text program because I need to go report Dan uh, now. So just, yeah, uh, sorry, guys.
but we'll be looking for a new host shortly after he's taken care of by the authorities. Yep. So I understand what they're trying to do, but there's such an uh, such a thing as way huge information overload. If you follow, if you go to this article and you uh, click through to the tweet, it'll put the tweet in context where the man from Cardiff said various things and stuff like that. But even then, by itself, doesn't necessarily mean anything. And yes, it's a terrible thing that's that's happened. But anyway, going on from this, I think we've said about. I've said about enough. Fair yes, enough. if you see suspicious things, say something. And suspicious is very subjective. Yes, it is. Um, it, it it makes things difficult like that, right? Like there's just so much that goes on. People are so strange. And we live in interesting times, in very multicultural times, in times where we've lost a lot of the uh, provisions about what is acceptable social behavior or other things, uh, I think mostly for the better um, by and large, but it, it can make it very hard for these kinds of judgments. And then it, when you start putting everyone in this, in this frame of mind where we're all very paranoid about one another, I mean, obviously we should be concerned because we should try to prevent legitimate terrorism, mm-hmm. crime, et cetera. But it, it does ask the question, like wh- where is this balance and how do we, how do we view our neighbors and how should we do that? And what's our default position? Yep. Uh, all right. Well, on to something maybe a little bit better. That's, you know, our next sponsor this evening. And that's our friends over at ixsystems.com. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, and uh, there you'll find the hardware service retailer that you've, you've really been waiting for. ixsystems, you'd be like, okay, what does ixsystems do? It's a little hard to describe because they do so much. If you need a new storage solution, boom, IX Systems. You need a brand new server, boom, IX Systems. You need consultation because you're building a new data center and you just don't quite know what to do, IX Systems. They have awesome partnerships with pretty much everyone in the field, and especially the people at Intel. They just work, they work closely to make sure that their hardware is powered by incredible Intel processors, that they've been fitted with the latest and greatest technology, and they really do a great job of staying abreast of these things. They work with the OpenCFS project. They work with hardware manufacturers to make sure that they can build you whole systems that have been tested, integrated, designed to scale and to work in production the first time. They go to great lengths, white glove service, to make sure that you know anything you buy from them, it's been battle tested, burned in, and once it's plugged in, racked up, ready to go, it's just going to work for years. And that's something that you can't find really, at, at, at almost any other provider, right? You don't, most places you go to the web, you're like, okay, well, I want this thing. Yep, okay, these, you get a couple options, maybe, if you're lucky, or you have too many options that have no guidance. You don't know what you want. You don't know what you need. Are these options even compatible? Are you going to ship me something that works? And what, are they going to ship it to you and then you have to put it together and then ship it to your data center and they're going to, no. IX Systems takes care of all of that. They've worked with some, like, incredible names in the industry, People like Sony, Disney, Yelp, Evernote, NASA, the University of California, Berkeley, big names doing serious research, serious business, serious projects. IX Systems understands that. They, you know, they're sales engineers. They're looking forward to your call. It's really different than working with one of the big, big box vendors. 
because you, you're not a number. You're not just an account ID. You don't have to call and threaten up just to get some service or get you know your warranty honored. No, iSystems understands that you know your solution needs to be custom. That you deserve time. That you need the best service available, and that's what they provide. Starting, starting. I mean, right there, right there at the low end with the free NAS Mini. If you need a reliable backup solution, that's just the first stop. I think that's pretty much what anyone in the industry would say is that you know the free NAS Mini go do it it's worth the it's worth the expense you can trust it you can rely on it it's it's ready for business it's ready for your your home office it's ready for your grandparents it's it's pretty much ready for anyone that you can set it up with it just works the first time you move on up from there maybe you need more storage than that you've got the true nas it's ready to be racked up in your data center um you know they work with OpenZFS project to make sure that they have enterprise ready file system that's got data integrity first and foremost it's ready to mount for, you know, you can do iSCSI, you can do NFS. Pretty much iX systems, they've been in the game so long, they know all of the software that you're going to use. They know how to run it. They know how to set up for it. They know how to integrate with it. That's what makes it so simple. So go to iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. There you'll find their definitive guide for buying hardware for open source software. It's a great guide you can give to anyone who's looking to buy some new hardware, whether that be you, uh, your boss, someone at work, or or just a friend. Go with that. You know, that'll let them know that you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. I know we sure do. And go get the best server that you'll probably ever buy at ixsystems.com. All righty then, back to the TechSnap program. What do you have for us now? Well, the next thing is slightly more lighthearted. Ah, okay, good. And I it, was getting a little depressed. Yeah, And I thought it was going to go down this one interesting path, but it didn't quite get there, and I was disappointed. But, sorry to disappoint you, <laughs> this is going to be fun. Excellent. Krebs on, Krebs on security. Got robocall? Don't get mad, get busy. Now, if you've got a cell phone, chances are you get a, a call, you answer it, and there's nobody there. What the hell? My theory is that they're calling to find out if it's a live number and then adding your number to a queue to later be called. So as a result, I rarely answer numbers that I don't recognize. And it used to be good for years, but only over the past year and a half, maybe year, I'm getting two or three phone calls a day from numbers I don't recognize, and I answer them, and there's nobody there. And if I ignore them, they don't leave a voicemail, or the voicemail is total silence until it clicks off. And a lot of times it might be from like things that look like it's your local extension. Yes, or lo- a, a local number. Yeah. But it, it's, all, it's all spoofed. The numbers are all spoofed. They're not the real numbers. And as someone in this article says, if someone, you know... It, if someone's willing to spoof their number, they're certainly not out to treat you fairly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So Krebs starts by saying, several times a week, my cell phone receives the telef- te- I always say uh, telephonic, but yeah. Te- tele- te- I mean, it's telephony? Tele- uh, telephony, I believe, but... Telephony is the word I wanted. The telephonic equivalent of spam. A robocall. On each occasion, the call seems to come from a local number, but when I answer, there is that telltale pause followed by an automated voice pitching some product or service. This is illegal. Automated phone calls with no voice on there, there are only very certain things that can do that, and almost all of them you have to opt into 
unless you're a politician, in which case they can do it all they want. Go figure. I would like them not to be able to do it as well. So when I heard from a reader who chose to hang on the line and see where one of the robocalls led, I decided to dig deeper. This is the story of that investigation. Hopefully, it will inspire readers to do their own digging and to help bury this annoying and intrusive practice. Can I just say right now that he, uh, I love this weird, creepy graphic of the robot using the cell phone that he's got here. It's perfect. So this reader, Cedric, not his real name. He decided to tell them a white lie. He lied. It's not a white lie. He lied. To the automated voice system that said, yes, I definitely was interested in credit repair facilities. I lied about my name and played like I needed credit repair to buy a home. I eventually wound up speaking with a representative at creditfix.com. That number, blah, 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 was not in service when Cedric tried to call it back suggesting it had been spoofed to make it look like it was coming from his local area. Going down, Credit Fix is hosted on a server at this address. According to records maintained by Farsight Security, a company which tracks internet addresses that correspond to domain names, that server hosts or recently hosted dozens of other websites. The full list is here. That's interesting kind of by itself there that, that like Farsight Security, they're just so they're just like maintaining a um, big back historical index of yep. reverse DNS basically. And, and a lot of them on that in that list, credit is mentioned 99 times. Wow. Hmm. And I didn't I didn't list how many pages or how many websites there were, but ninety nine is a lot. Yeah. Well, let's see how many dot com. There's hundred and seventy five dot com. Yeah, so, okay, so that's a sizable portion of that. And they're all dot com addresses. They're, they're, uh, yes, they are all dot com addresses. So more than half of these are related to to credit or something credit. like that. Yeah. Now the, the, there may be other languages. Good point. So, back to this. Most of these domains appear tied to various credit repair services owned or run by a guy named Michael LaSala and registered to a mail drop in Las Vegas. Looking closer at who owns the address, we find it is registered to System Admin LCC, a Florida, don't trust Florida, company that lists LaSala as a manager, according to a lookup at the Florida Secretary of State's office. So basically, the domains are owned or run by this guy, and the IP address is run by this guy. Pardon me. Um, emails to the contact address at creditfix.com elicit a response from Sean in his compliance department. Sean told Krebs that mine was the second complaint this company received about robocalls. Sean said he was convinced that his employer was scammed by a lead generation company that is using robocalls to quickly and illegally gin up referrals, which generate commissions for the lead generation firm. So it's not us, it's them. And... Credit Fix said the robocall leads it received appear to have been referred to by Little Brook Media, a marketing firm in New York City. Little Brook Media did not respond to multiple requests for comment. Then it goes into the bit about 
robocalls are permitted for for political candidates but if beyond but beyond that if the recording is from a sales message and you haven't given your written permission to get calls from the company on the other end the call is illegal according to the ftc companies are using auto dollars to send out thousands of calls every minute for an incredibly low cost these the companies that use this technology don't bother to screen for numbers on the national do not call registry. I am on it. You should get on it. It's a link here. The FTC notes an advisory on its website. If the company doesn't care about obeying the law, you can be sure that they're trying to scam you. So if your number is on the do not call list, they are required not to call you. And if they do anyway, it's a scam. Now another interesting thing here. If the robocaller decides to spoof another phone number, making it appear that they're calling from a different line to hide their identity, phone pro- this is a proposal. Phone providers would be able to block them if they use a number that clearly didn't exist because it hasn't been assigned or that an existing subscriber has, has asked not to have it spoofed. This is uh, a proposal. The FCC recently approved new rules that would let phone companies block robocallers from using numbers they weren't supposed to be using. Why don't they just block robocallers? Right. Why does it take a proposal and FT- FCC um, approval for that to happen? You'd think that would like almost fall under like good network management type practices? Perhaps it is illegal for them to cut off service. Right. Hmm. So like, if, if you can spoof it, then... They they can't interfere with that as long as inter- yeah hmm, I can see something there. It, it may be yeah, but the, the, the phone lines are a very special service, mm-hmm. and it it may be easier to cut off other sort of services than it is the phone. Yeah, no, I, it's I, a bit it's a bit like cutting off your heat in the middle of winter. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. That, and it makes sense that there would be safeguards um, mm-hmm. safeguards around that, especially given its you know historical place, um, et, et cetera. So I suppose that makes sense. But you're right. It's frustrating that you're like, well, why, how, why is it taking so long to let people, you know, just, just block the people where you're obviously like, well, this isn't your number. You're trying to say that this is your DID. It's not your, yes. it's not your number. Like, no, just no, yep. it's not happening. Now, um, did we talk recently about the guy that was calling the the robocallers? Yeah, a little bit. He, he was he was calling them so much that they couldn't receive other incoming calls. He was basically flooding their incoming calls with his fake calls, so that they couldn't get <laughs> out to any scammer, any out to any potential scam victims. Right. The other ones I've seen are are people who make um, like spam honeypots in the same you know where it's like it sounds like it's a person or it's like a very dumb ai that interacts like mm-hmm. a person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep those are just so, kind of fun i'm sad to say that it didn't this article didn't lead to exposing someone and they went to jail or anything like that it just sort of died there but yeah it is interesting I wouldn't be surprised to see another post from Krebs if he starts looking into this a little bit closer. 
the FTC received nearly 3.5 million robocall complaints in 2016, an increase of 60% from the previous year. And the FCC estimates that there are more than 2.4 billion robocalls made every month, or roughly seven calls per person per month. That's one every three days, is it? Uh, uh, no, one every four days. That's still more than I would like. Yes. By, by far. Huh. So I, I think I've received three today, two today. Mm, mm-hmm. I see they talk yeah. here about a little bit about, like, for example, AT&T offers wireless customers yes. a call protect app, which screens yes. incoming calls and flags those that are likely spam. Yeah, well... But I think those also exist, like, um, you know, Google will do that um, to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a lot of those already. I know I've not answered calls because I've not recognized them. It's turned out to be someone, oh, pardon me, a call I was expecting. Yeah, that's, I the, just called them back. that's the worst part is that, I mean, I had that just a similar thing, right, where you're like, my general policy is if I don't know you the number, I won't answer and, you know, leave a voicemail and I'll call you back if it's uh, if it's legitimate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um but you're right. There's tons of times where that then backfires, and having this default no trust, it it's really unfortunate. I was a lot to a lot of people in my life who yeah. now screen their calls or other things. It's just it's made something that much like I guess the same security trend on the internet. We've gone from a safe world where you could kind of trust things, and it's just not like that anymore. No, it's it's yeah, it's not good. <sighs> I okay. wish it was a lot easier. Anything else you want to add about this uh, before you get interrupted by a robocall? Um, no, thank you. Okay, well then we move on to our final sponsor this evening, and that's our friends over at Ting. They don't robocall, you know. No, my friends, they're the exact opposite. They're mobile. That makes sense. Go to techsnap.ting.com, like just just right now, because you're sick of robocalls. I mean, they can't necessarily protect you from that, no, but they can make it so that you have a much smaller phone bill. TechSnap.Ting.com, the average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month. It's a smarter way to do mobile. You can go over there and you'll start seeing how much you'll save. You just click on their rates page. Come play with their fun little HTML form here. You'll see that lines start at $6.00. A month, and that comes with no early termination fees, no data caps, no overages, no special tethering data that you have to pay extra for. You get all the features you want: three-way calling, voicemail, etc. So, so it just works, right? It's just a phone that just works, and you can use it. They're not going to cut you off. They don't mysteriously throttle you. They don't downgrade your video quality. They don't assign you super cookies. Now, they're just not interested in that because they're trying to provide you phone service it's just so simple you just pay for what you use on top of that so six dollars a line and then you know hey whatever you pay however many minutes you need just a little bit of minutes maybe just a little bit of text messages and and, and a little bit of data you're at 28 dollars a month and that's and that's for some of everything you probably don't need all of that you're probably pretty wi-fi savvy anytime you're on wi-fi you don't you don't pay for that. That's why it makes so much sense. And maybe maybe this isn't for you. Maybe maybe you're one of those people who doesn't like to save money or just wants to waste money. And you just want a cell phone plan where you don't have to think about it. You pay a fixed rate. Uh, you just get so many mi- minutes of these things and, and blah blah blah. And it's enough. It's enough for the kids to use their phone or whatever. I don't think that's you because 
the, the big carriers, you can see but with their marketing trends, they've just gone to a system where they just keep adding on new things. They don't have clear value. They don't know how to incentivize you to keep staying with their bloated plan. So they just, hey, unlimited minutes. Okay, fine. Just pay us $100 a month or $150 a month for some of these plans. That's crazy. You should just pay for what you use. And that's the way that Ting does it. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit. That'll probably pay for like most of your first month, as you can see here, which is awesome. Or if not, you know, you can bring your own device to Ting. They make it super easy. They've got an IMI checker. You just put in some digits, check to see if your phone's eligible. It most likely is. And then you jump on the Ting plan. They don't get in the way of your updates. They're not going to like, oh, you're running some, uh, you know, non-rooted thing or rooted firmware or blah, blah, blah. No, they don't care. As long, as long as you abide some reasonable rules and restrictions according to the service contract, etc., Ting is Honey Badger with all of that. And that's also what makes them great. But if you need a new phone, you can just go over to their shop. Yeah, that's right. They've got a shop. You can buy your SIM cards there. Or if you need a new phone, you can get the latest iPhone 7 or that Samsung Galaxy S8 that everyone's talking about with that smooth screen. Maybe that's not for you, though. You're not, you're not really interested in that high-end nonsense. Instead, you just want the Home Phone Connect 3. It's a CDMA. Boom. Data plan right there. Novatel My5500. That is super popular. CDMA refurbished. Great deal. $84. You just have a MiFi that you keep in the car with you all the time. It's $6 a month when you use internet. Boom. You pay for that. When you don't, you don't. It's so simple. They've also got a great line of these kind of bargain basement Android funds. Things like the Alcatel A392, which is from $63. They've got some ruggedized phones. So maybe you just want a phone that you throw it in the work truck, it sits in the glove box, or it goes out with you while you're hiking, etc. for safety, but you don't want to bring your nice phone. There's so many options. And these are the kind of things that Ting really, really makes possible. So Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. Let them know that you appreciate them sponsoring our program. And go get yourself a way better phone plan. And that brings us to the feedback segment this week. We're a little light on feedback. Uh, So we've got some feedback from our very own Mr. Dan. But first, we did have one comment. Uh, This is from Joe. And he says... Black and white print tracking dots, document forgery and counterfeiting is not limited to cash, nor is the desire to track. Yeah, he, he he's brief and I understand what he's saying. Elaborate, please. So, um, we were talking, this originally got started with uh, yellow dots printed by color photocopiers allowed uh, a whistleblower to be identified. I forget what the exact case was, but uh, the reporter went to the NSA and said, can you confirm this this document? And they said, sure. And they looked at the document, they saw the yellow dots, found out what printer it was printed on and at what time and looked at the logs and saw that that person was so-and-so and they found their whistleblower. It may not have been the NSA. But no, it was. I believe. Yeah. yeah. So, and then it went on to later on. Someone pointed out that this tracking was originally added to color photocopiers to help them deter counterfeiting and photocopying of cash specifically. Right. But now people say, "Well, we want to track a lot of things, and yeah. it's not just this or that." Yeah. So yeah, why they want to track this is beyond me. But 
It's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I guess it, I suppose it goes on with the general. It, it's so nice when you later want to go find things later to have to have additional metadata. Um, uh-huh. And so, yeah, uh-huh. I can I can see that desire at least from the like the programmer side or the um, you know, where you're just like, well, now I can now I know more about where this came from and I have a way to yes. like and uh, understand uh-huh. that and track it. And but it does have serious privacy implications, obviously. Quite. So thank you, Joe, for that. Um, and you guys can give us more feedback at uh, techsnap.reddit.com or jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. There's a contact form there. Or you can find us both on Twitter. Uh, makes it real easy. So since we're done with the mailbag this week, Dan, we thought maybe you could talk a little bit uh, about your uh, recent changes to your Let's Encrypt setup, which we've kind of been following on and off here for yeah. the past couple of weeks. Because it's been taking forever to do. <laughs> um Let's Encrypt is an organization that's set up in order to provide free and easily obtainable SSL certificates. And as someone who has a lot of websites and a lot of SSL certificates, one of the most exciting things to do not is to renew a certificate. Basically, you have to renew the certificate, you have to identify yourself, and you have to pay someone for money, and then they give you the cert, and then you have to install it. And I would say on a good day, it would take up at least 15 minutes, maybe half an hour, renewing a cert. And some web types, some, some web uh, cert providers take ages. Some are free, like Start SSL, but I recommend that if you're using Start SSL, stop. Yeah, and I mean that doesn't underscore that you know your different SSL providers may have entirely different processes or hoops mm-hmm. for you to jump through, and mm-hmm. you have different credentials that you need to keep mm-hmm. track of. Yeah, it's it's been a pain. Yeah. So let let's encrypt lets you prove that you own a website in two. Well, lets you prove that you own a domain name in two ways. One, by putting a certain file on that website or by adding a certain text value to your DNS. Either way, if you can do that, they say, yep, you own that domain, here's your cert, free of charge. And this cert is good for 90 days, and you're expected to renew it every 60 days. Why so short? Because you're supposed to automate it. Why automate it? So it gets done. Oh my God, that's the best ever. I love it. Yeah, why automate it? So that it actually freaking happens. Yeah, beautiful. Now, have uh, click on my show my um, photograph from my notebook, please. Um, I had been yeah. Click on the photograph. Does it get too big? Does it overflow the screen? So, I had done some work on Saturday morning. I think that's the date of this tweet. No, it's not. That's that's today or yesterday. So, over the weekend, I finally got a full round of here, do this, do that, do that, and I got a certificate, all completely automated. It wasn't deployed, but I I got the certificate. And at that point, I said, i got to write this down. i got to write down what I've done. i got to have it in a picture because I work very well over pictures. Yes. So this top photo is a jail that runs Acme.sh, which is an implementation of the Let's Encrypt uh, Acme protocol. Uh, I run the Acme script that talks to Let's Encrypt and that shoves what it gets into VARDB Acme certs. Then I wrote a, then I created a special user 
called the collector. And all the collector does is grabs certificates from that directory and puts them in another directory. Why? Because there's data in that directory that I do not want to expose to the world, specifically keys. You only supply, so you only make the certs public. You never make the keys public. So I have a little user called the collector, and the collector has a little script, and all it does is look in there, look in that directory for certificates less than a day old, and then copies them over to there. So that's the first jail. Oh, yes. Over on the left-hand side of the photograph, you'll see DNS01. When the acme.sh script talks to Let's Encrypt, it then goes down and talks to my uh, hidden master and adds a text record. We'll get into that later. It adds a text record as part of the verification process. That text record gets added to the master. The master notifies all the public servers. All my public servers then pull down the new zone and boom. Let Acme then says to Let's Encrypt, okay, you can go and validate it. Let's Encrypt validates it and I get the cert. So the middle jail. In the middle jail, there is a VARDB certs, which is the same VARDB certs from the first jail, but it's mounted read-only via a nullfs mount, which means it can read it, but there's no way. It is impossible to write to it. It is read-only. It is a read-only file system. So in that jail, I have a user called rsyncer, and that user can read that directory. Jump down to the next jail. The next jail is a website that has a public directory on it. In that jail, I have another user called rsyncer, and that user connects to the middle jail via public SSH key and does an rsync down. It is limited to only doing an rsync and only doing an rsync of that directory. It can do nothing else whatsoever. Nice. And that... SSH connection has to come from a specific IP address, which has to resolve to a specific specific host name. That may be a SSH-only key, but it's very limited as to what it can do. So, most of this is working. The Let's Encrypt worked once, then I tore it down, put it aside, and put it in storage because I want to redo that whole jail from scratch because I did a lot of mucking around in there <laughs> yes. to, to get it working. Getting things working, you want to have a clean redo. Yep. The collector works, the rsync works, and the website uh, will get populated when there are certificates in it. There are none at the moment. What then needs to happen is this ABC down there are all my jails and websites that need their certs. And once a day, they'll wake up, run a script, and fetch all of the certificates that they use from that jail, but only if they were newer or of a different size. Once it fetches one, then I have to code something up to put that certificate it just fetched in the right place and restart the right services. It might be a mail server, might be a web server, might be Dovecot, uh, might be... I can't think of anything else that uses certs. Now, keep in mind that this whole solution is only for my public certificates. Any private certificates that are used only by mechanisms within my infrastructure, those are all my own private CA. The reason being, it's a lot harder. It's hard to spoof Let's Encrypt. 
But for you to spoof one of my certs, you've got to compromise my certificate authority. And if you're good enough to get in here and do that, well, I'm outgunned anyway. So I'm not really worried. Have at it. Yes. That's not an invitation. So I put this up on the web and Peter Wim said, three jails, only three. Are you really trying or something like that? So one of the differences that, that the FreeBSD infrastructure does is I have my update of my DNS within my Acme jail. Um, FreeBSD doesn't do that. They do it via a separate jail because they have all their uh, DNS sec stuff in there. But why am I doing it in the same jail? Because it's straightforward to do so. And if we go to the next link, which is my uh, blog post, it does the update of DNS via NS update. And that key is allowed only to create TXT records. Oh, neat. That's awesome. And if you scroll down to, where is it? Yeah. Uh, four black squares from the bottom, in the allowing the key to update the zone. Ah, yes, here we are. Yeah, next one down. Update policy. Ah. It says grant the Let's Encrypt key a wildcard acmechallenge.star text. Now, that doesn't actually work. That's not what I... That's, <laughs> that's what I... You were hoping that's what would work. I was hoping that would work that way, but it does not. It is slightly different, and I will make myself a note to update that page. That'll come out in another blog post later, but that's basically how it works. Now, there's still a lot more work to do. I I reckon uh, I have another three or four hours to get it working to the point of where the certs wind up on the website properly. And then probably another four or five hours of writing scripts to make sure the right things turn up in the right places. And I fear that I'll have to do a unique script per host. I don't think so. I think I can get away with a unique script per service. Okay. Mm. But we'll see. So will this all because be public, uh, open source? I'll, I'll, no. Well, I'll I'll create blog posts and I'll show the scripts, but the scripts aren't very complicated. It's mm. just mm-hmm. different bits and pieces. Tying things the together. Whole, yeah. The whole solution isn't very complex. It's just time-consuming to figure out how you want to do it. Right. And, of course, with automation, like, because it's going to be running – hopefully forever uh you know you gotta take that time to make sure that it runs correctly well and you know work out all the edge cases and i um go to crt.sh please done one of the one of the things i need to do initially is figure out my list of certificates so type in percent freebsd.org just for the hell of it. This is all the certificates that it's found for freebsd.org. And you can see there's a lot of let's encrypt there. Yeah, there in are. In fact, a whole lot of let's wow. encrypt. Further down, you get Gandhi. 
Boy, that's uh there's a lot going on here. Jenkins, yeah. MX yeah. so many MX relays, all the FTP, mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. CVS webs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Perforce is so, on there. Come on. There's a very useful, very useful certificate, a uh, very useful tool that someone pointed out to me today that may be very useful. All right. So that's the first thing I have to do is compile a list of certs that I use, and I may be using this to do that because acme.sh needs to know the certs I need to renew. Right. So every day it'll go through and say, how old is this one? How old is this one? How old is this one? Oh, it, it, I don't know whether to give it a list of certs or just on the initial – I think each initial cert will have to be done via hand – and then I have a list of certs sitting there, and the script will look to see what needs to be renewed now. I don't know if acme.sh will automatically renew, or if you have to say, renew this one because it's due to renew. But it's easy to get that information out. I can just look at a cert and say, if this is over 90 days old, I need to, uh, 60 days old, I need to renew Right, it. I'm pretty sure there's already a Nagios monitor for that exact thing. Um that's for monitoring it. I, I will monitor to make sure the certs that are out in the field aren't more than 65 days old. But the Acme script in-house will have to be driven so that when a cert gets to be more than 60 days old, old, it renews it. And it's not looking out in the field. It's looking in that jail, just that directory of, of certs that it has locally. That's my thoughts as to how it's going to work. I haven't researched that side of it yet. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. How, okay, so how have you liked a- uh, Acme.sh? Has it been limiting or anything? No. Not limiting. Um, uh, have you I've looked at the source also? I have, I have not. Yes. I've looked a little bit at it, and what's been frustrating is figuring out uh, what a particular value is, or knowing that that a particular knob exists and that you can set it. Like, I wanted to put all my certificates outside the tree somewhere over here and didn't know how to do that until I found an error message and said, oh, that has a path in it. I wonder how that path is generated. And I looked for the error message and tracked it back and, and found the setting I had to make. Now, I don't know if that's documentation doesn't exist or i'm just not reading it carefully enough or what but. that's always my uh my qualification with with shell tools is yeah i mean with any dependency that you have it's like you know if push comes to shove you might have to open it up and be able to debug it or change it or modify it or um. I, i'm quite happy with it being a shell script okay. i'm 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 fine with that yeah, it sounds like it's working well. I, I I haven't tried it um, that particular one, but I, I remember seeing it when it first came out and being like, yeah, okay, that's neat. I mean, you know, super easy to install. You don't need ten tons of dependencies. It's just a shell script. Yep. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, anything else you want to add? Nope. That turned into a little deep dive. That yeah, was okay. That was beautiful. I love it. Thank you very much for sharing, good sir. And that wraps up the feedback. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with the roundup. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. That's right. It's time for the roundup. These stories weren't quite, you know, top of show material, but actually they're still hmm, really good. So first up, the Windows 10 lock screen leaks clipboard 
contents. That doesn't sound very good. Uh, let's find out more. Now, I've never seen the Windows 10 lock screen. I'm not even sure I've used Windows 10. I think not, but basically, on Windows 10, there is a way to read clipboard contents. In, in, in other words, con uh, Control-C, copy stuff right from the lock screen without any form of authentication. It could be a problem. This would be especially a problem in enterprise environments where any coworker could easily go through a few PCs at lunchtime and harvest potentially juicy information such as passwords without leaving any trace. Now, yeah, that could happen, but I think you might get spotted doing that. So the proof of concept goes as follows. Uh, type win plus L, which locks the workstation. Uh, press win plus enter, which starts the narrator. Then do caps lock plus F1, which opens the narrator help. Then control V. Post what's on the clipboard right there and then. So I wonder if really the way around this is to disable copy paste from when the lock screen is locked. Mm, yeah. But and that may be harder to do than it sounds. Right. I don't know what that looks like in terms of their framework. Do they have the right hooks in the mm. right places for mm. that granularity? Um, what layer is copy-paste implemented in the Windows yeah. um, window manager? This, this issue affects all editions of Windows 10. And according to Mo, the uh, person who... Uh, found this issue. Microsoft does not consider this to be a security issue as it requires physical access. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Fair enough. But it's not ideal. I suppose... It's, a, it's an information leak. Yeah, definitely. I don't imagine... I imagine there are some enterprises out there who are less than thrilled that this uh, this works. Especially, like... I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, yeah, it doesn't... 90% 90, 90 of people doesn't affect at all. But once you're targeted, this is the exact kind of thing that people can start to try to take advantage of. Um, or you can start targeting, you know, like, um, IT staff, people who might have other people's passwords pasted or other, other important information available to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I suppose mm -hmm. if you are one of those people, like, you should look into like maybe a clipboard manager or other thing that, um, you know, or if you are using secrets, store them in something that if it uses the clipboard, it will clear them after a certain amount of time, like key pass or something. I wonder if you can disable narrator. That's a good question too. Yeah. Or you can you disable some of those usability, um, features so that you don't have this problem. I don't know. I'll have to look at that. I don't have a windows machine handy to test uh, with, unfortunately. Neither do I. Oh boy. Can we spin up a digital ocean? Yeah. Problem? Hey, there yeah. we go. We don't have a touch screen then. No, that's true. Mm, okay. All right. Well, I guess we'll just move on with the roundup. Dan, what what is the Elgin rectangle, and and why couldn't people lock their cars in Carlton? Um, the Elgin rectangle. Carlton is a suburb of Melbourne, and Melbourne is a very nice city in Australia. It was a city in Australia that I liked the most. Oh, nice. Um, now. So, scrolling down here, visitors to Carlton would spend chunks of time waiting for the beep, flash, or clunk to signify their chariot had been successfully protected. No luck. Was it dodgy batteries? The news agent was doing a nice business out of it, but no. Drive around the corner and the electronics would start working again. 
The enigma seemed to be focused on one small pocket, Elgin Street between Drummond Street and Ligon Street. I think that's pronounced correctly. So, what did it turn out to be? A a malfunctioning doorbell. Really? Yeah, they sent someone around to investigate it. They, They sent someone around with a spectrum detector. And... He visited the area and found a constant signal at 434 megahertz, which is the same frequency used uh-huh. by car remotes. He walked around with the analyzer, and it appeared to be the strongest reading coming from the doorway of the dentist. The culprit, it wasn't a frequency jammer or clandestine radio broadcast, but a doorbell. A fault with a transmitter used as part of a doorbell sensor at the Carlton Dental had knocked out key remotes across the whole street. Doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Wow, that's it's, that's wild. What What's interesting is it's a dental clinic that provide the original tip off about the problem. <laughs> so they were the problem and the solution. It turns out, yes. Wow. Yes. Uh, I wonder if they knew, and they just wanted to see if the you know it's like a test for the uh, yes. for that spectrum analyzer yes. guy. Will he find it? Because we really screwed up our doorbell here. It's probably breaking this. Uh, that test thing reminds me. Uh, go into Etsy Cron tab, enter a line, don't hit enter. It'll never run. You know, I've seen that before. Yeah, you need that. Uh, you, ha- you know, has to actually you be properly terminated. You need the new line. That's right. You know, I've seen I've actually seen comments in Crontab saying that, like, hey, leave this new line or else or things like that. So that's funny. Is that just a peculiarity in the way that Damon parses? It's in the definition. I see. So it's like I it's two spec. A Crontab line is defined as a string of characters ended with a new line. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, that makes sense. So, de- yeah. you know, use a use a decent editor that will uh, tell you those uh-huh. things so you can uh-huh. actually make sure that that's uh-huh. what's happening. Uh, okay. And uh, speaking of decent things, maybe maybe it's time that you take a new approach to how you do VPN. Maybe not. But uh, you could try going beyond. So I tried to highlight this article with my fancy highlighting JavaScript. It yeah. won't work. It <laughs> won't work. I cannot highlight this text and i don't know why i imagine it it's it's being interfered with by some other like if you try to highlight something you will get like a g plus a twitter and a facebook oh yeah here i'll show, show thing, that thing pop up that's what you get pop up i also get my annotation box pop up and i think they're conflicting with with each other and so i can't run mine but i can run theirs <laughs> but, I, but anyway so um let me find the bit that I wanted to mention because it is not highlighted. So this is basically beyond corp is a security approach used by Google that allows employees to work from anywhere quickly and easily. In other words, they're not using a VPN. You're just straight in to what you need. You've got your tools right there. So how do they do that? I don't know. Basically, (laughs) Ask them. Why are you asking me? I'm just the podcaster. Don't ask me. (laughs) BeyondCorp makes applications easily accessible from anywhere. It also improves security in other ways. Over the course of the migration, we've discovered services that we thought were long dead – 
because this change required taking a detailed look at our traffic, our dependencies, and our employee usage patterns. It also allowed us to scale globally while reducing our attack surface and increased our ability to provide access when appropriate. Now, there's a whole bunch of things here that you have to do, but there are four links at the bottom of the page that goes through, and basically it's a new approach to, to how you do it, how they did it, and it basically took years, not exaggerating, years to move from the old approach to the new approach. But basically, they have better security because of it. And I don't know how easy that, how applicable that is to other, other organizations. I mean, it seems like they've ha- really had to internalize it and made it a part of everything, right? Like it's um, to, to migrate to it, they've had to do things like expose services and and keep track mm-hmm. of these and build profiles mm-hmm. about how services are used and monitor those yep. things. But it does seem like a much better approach if you can do it than the like black or white. All right, well, we give you VPN access. You're on the VPN, and we we, we just we we trust the VPN, which I think is a you know how a lot of places end up running. And being on VPNs is sort of okay. But it also means you can't be VPNed into another place. Now, some yeah. people do 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 dual VPNs, but it is a security risk. And I don't do it when I'm connected. I don't do it when I'm connected to anywhere. I'm only ever on one VPN at a time. Right, and it adds a, a you know a whole other layer of management and infrastructure and understanding. And if you just want your employee to be able to go access mm-hmm. a resource at a public thing with their credentials, like that's a lot easier and they don't have to understand that they have to have this connection and it's separate yep. credentials or, or whatever. Yep. So it's interesting. It's neat that they've, um, you know, they've published these things uh, publicly that you can go check it out. You're, you're right. Yep. Like I don't, you probably need to be Google scale or similar to be able to do this kind of radical change. But um, maybe now that they've kind of ex- they've explored it a little more, they're offering a couple primitives or examples. Um, maybe we'll see some of this designed into future products. I think this would be really good. Yeah, definitely. It seems a lot better than the things we have now. Uh, okay, on to the next roundup item. Australia is advocating weakening strong crypto at the upcoming Five Eyes meeting. Uh, before we go on, what Five Eyes? What are we? What are we talking about here, Dan? Okay, Five Eyes uh, is a group. In this post, they call it a, a group of English-speaking nations that routinely share uh, intelligence, but. In short, it all started off with a U.S.-U.K., I believe, uh, treaty, and then um, Australia, Canada, New Zealand all jumped on as well. Uh, I would say mainly, I'm going to guess that Canada jumped in on it because Canada-U.S. have a very good relation, and U.K., Australia, New Zealand jumped in as well because they have a good relationship with the U.K. And if you look at a globe, that pretty much covers all your hemispheres. It's southern hemisphere, northern hemisphere, east and west. Um, I would say that they do a lot of sharing of information. I would say that they each country is sort of spying on the other one's neighbors because you can't spy on your own, but you can spy on foreign people. I know that some of the listening stations in New Zealand uh, were very sensitive and they were known to be part of this. Uh, there are various organizations that, that are mentioned. There, there's a link here to the Wikipedia article. Um, let me find it because I wanted to mention something about the groups in there. If you scroll down, uh, there is the, under Canada, there's the 
Canadian Forces Intelligence Command. Now, I'm not sure if I knew people that worked there or not, but I'm sure that that is now composed of the group that my father used to work for. Now, CSC, Canadian Security Establishment, I definitely know people that work there. They have an office not far away from where I used to used to live and I used to bus by there all the time used to drive by on the way to work at one time and CSIS everyone knows where CSIS is there it's right there on Blair Road um, in the east end of Ottawa Ottawa everyone knows where that is um, it's a beautiful building um, New Zealand uh, GCSB G GCSB, yeah, that's the one. I always have, if I'm not reading it, I have trouble looking it up. But basically, it, it's human intelligence, which is the, the, the software actually talking to people, and it's electronic intelligence, which is the uh, intercepts, SIGINT is what it's called. Um, but yeah, all of these groups are cooperating, and it's a huge volume of data. Anyway, back to what they're advocating. Top Australian government officials said Sunday that they will push for thwarting the encryption of terrorist messaging during an upcoming meeting next week of the so-called Five Eyes group of English-speaking nations that routinely share intelligence. There's a problem with that. Thwarting the encryption of terrorist messaging. No, that's not what you're asking for. You're asking for backdoors and encryption for everyone not just terrorists right does this only affect me if i like tag my post with uh, hashtag terrorist on it or uh, yes yes within a number of years effectively 100 percent of communications are going to use encryption they told an australian newspaper the problem is going to degrade if not destroy our capacity to gather and act upon intelligence unless it's addressed no Encryption has existed for a very long time. Encryption is not new. You had to deal with encryption all through World War I, World War II, and before. Encryption is not new. Don't give us that crap. Yeah, it's like it's a little bit like uh, complaining that, oh, well, uh, hey, suddenly we invented all these additional means of communicating and we could uh, just silently eavesdrop on them. Mm-hmm. Oh, but now you figured out how to stop that and we're back to where we were before. Uh-huh. And it's like, well, tough. And they're saying a key escrow. No, the key escrow is not going to work because someone's going to break into the key escrow and all of our encryption, including the government encryption, is going to be open. And are you suggesting that say, the government and the public should use two different sets of encryption? Well, that's not going to work because the people that are mandated to use your government-supplied encryption are going to use it, and the people that don't want to use it are just going to use publicly available open-source software anyway. And that software is out there, and you're never going to pull it back. So this is absolutely ridiculous to even suggest using weaker encryption. Yeah, it's crazy. Because all it's going to do is cause more crime against innocent people. And turn, yeah, right, exactly. And then and turn innocent people into uh, criminals as well. Yeah. Come on, Australia. Come on. It's it's frustrating how, I mean, I understand their perspectives from it, but it's, it's just the, the technical, I mean, um, not a numeracy, but whatever the yeah. technical equivalent is, just like ignoring the technical facts here is very frustrating. I wonder how... Canberra drew the short straw and had to 
make this suggestion? Yeah, that's a good question. We need someone to say it, and uh, I can't. I'm not going to say it because I'll look like a fool. But uh, yeah. someone yeah. has to say yeah. it. Someone has to say it. <sighs> All right. Well, I suppose that. Oh, go on. At the risk of sounding uh, terrible, Australia is not exactly a welcoming country to immigrants. Yeah, they've had a lot of um, issues around that, around policies well, on encryption the, and, and similar things. What is the country in – what is the island that, that they uh, used to be guano uh, – Australian immigration island. There it is. Nauru. Nauru. Oh, yeah, okay. It's absolutely atrocious what is going on there. Anyway. Sorry. On to a brighter topic. Yes. On to the final roundup item this evening. 25 microchips that shook the world. This is just a list of some of the most innovative, intriguing, and inspiring integrated circuits. Yep. Now, most of these I've never heard of, but some of them I have. Read about the NE555 timer, which was basically the first thing that could time something. And once you can time something, you can do a whole lot of other stuff. And it's just amazing. There's a speech synthesizer down here. There is the 6502, which I have heard of. The 6502 is really cool. Um, let me go through here. Uh, a UART. They created a UART, which is absolutely vital for... Asynchronous, what is it? You, you, I forget what it stood for, but I remember yours. Um, the Kodak image sensor, that all became deep blue chest uh, chip. Um, the Intel 8088 in 1979, I had an 8088 at one time. Um, an MP3 decoder, wow. Um, a four kilobyte DRAM, 4K DRAM, that's huge. Um, the Zill, the Zilog Z80 microprocessor, that was huge. I remember reading about that when it first came out. And then the Sun Spark processor, uh, what else is down here? Uh, the ADSL chipset in 94, that's a big deal. The Motorola 6800, you must have heard of that. Yep. Uh, the, AT, the AT chipset, um, the IBM AT, I think that's what they're talking about. Um, and then the last one on the list, believe it or not, is from 1989, Toshiba NAND flash memory. Flash memory is huge. huge. There's so much that that's used for now. But have a read through here and, and the little bits of history that are in there as to how things got started and stuff like that is very interesting. I got hooked by the very first one about the NE555 circuit. Uh, they talk in here about the number of transistors, didn't they? Fine transistors, yes. His final design had 23 transistors, 16 resistors, and two diodes. He spent wow. nearly a year uh, making breadboard prototypes. It was a sensation. Uh, 
Many billions have been sold. Engineers still use the 555 to create useful electronic modules, as well as useful things like Knight Rider-style lights for car grills. Isn't that crazy? And, like, these days, like, something like that, you know, you might um, you might design or study or implement in, in like, an undergraduate course. But mm-hmm, at the mm-hmm. time, that was a, yep. a breakthrough. Yep. They just... It, and it's not that long ago, even, is, is part of the crazy 71. part. Yeah, right? 71. 71. Um, and now we're uh, The live guy is streaming. still working. That's amazing. Uh, uh, where, where is he? Uh, it gave his age. He's at 75 and he's still designing chips. He's Kamenzind. 75 years old. Yeah. Ha- Hans uh, Kamenzind. Oh, hold on. I'm sorry. This article is from 2009. <laughs> so he may not still be designing chips. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. Regardless, hmm. that's very impressive, and this is a fascinating article. And there's a lot, you know, either it'll take you back, or, uh, hey, it might uh, learn you something new about a chip that you never heard about how it how it changed the world maybe before you were born. Yep. Awesome. I okay. agree. Well, I guess that rounds out today's tech snap. Uh, anything you want to leave the audience with, good sir? No, okay. not at all. Awesome. Well, then this has been episode 326 of the TechSnap program. If you'd like to see more of us, go on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash archive or slash contact or slash calendar or uh, I don't, what, whichever link. You'll find the live stream there, too. The live stream, you can join the IRC room, check out all the other great shows on the network. Uh, there's also a bunch of Reddit subreddit pages, so like techsnap.reddit.com. There's also like linuxunplugged.reddit.com. Anyway, you can go find those. Or find both of us on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne, and he is at TechSnap underscore Dan. That's, it, it's, just, it's just so easy. Thank you very much for joining us here. You can join us live, join the IRC room. It's a ton of fun. Or just, uh, hey, keep watching. And we'll see you next week. Yeah.